we're doing is we're mining the memory to understand what has already been capable on Main Street. So you can't tell us what we can't do because we already know that this has happened before in this space. Hello, and welcome to Art Restart, where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. And I'm Pierre Carlotanti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. This week, we bring you our interview with performing artist and activist Carlton Turner. Carlton is an artist, agriculturalist, researcher, and founder of the Mississippi Center for Cultural Production, also known as SIP Culture. SIP Culture uses food and story to support rural community, cultural, and economic development in his hometown of Utica, Mississippi. Before founding SIP Culture, Carlton was executive director of Alternate Roots, an arts service organization based in the South, promoting the creation of art rooted in community and advocating for social and economic justice for all. A widely admired thought leader on the power and urgency of creative placemaking, Carlton speaks all over the country and is a current interdisciplinary research fellow with the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. He's also a former Ford Foundation Art of Change Fellow and a Cultural Policy Fellow at the Creative Placemaking Institute at Arizona State University's Herberger Institute for Design in the Arts. He also currently serves on the board of First People's Fund, Imagining America, and Project South. Good Lord, how does he have time to even eat breakfast? I have no idea. He's a busy dude. <laughs> As for the creative work he somehow finds a time to do on his limited own time, he is currently collaborating on a new performance project titled River Souls with Mina Natrajan and Deepankar Mukherjee, the co-artistic directors of Pangea Theatre Company in Minneapolis. Carlton spoke to us from his home in Utica. We started the interview by asking him whether and how the events of 2020 affected SIP culture and the plans he has for the organization. I would say no. Um, I think um, the work of civ culture, first and foremost, is about cultural transformation, um, community development, uh, looking at the work that we do in our small rural community and how it relates to the larger um, world around us in society. Uh, we use food and storytelling as our primary methods of, of connecting to community and of, of enacting our mission in the world. I think what we saw during the pandemic was um, kind of this kind of freeze moment in which um, people were asked to pause, um, to kind of stop the world in a way, uh, to, to stop doing what we had kind of been accustomed to doing every day, getting up, going to work, going to the grocery store, uh, going to the movies, going to the ball game, going to the concert, going to church, going to whatever thing, you know, schools back and forth. Um, this uh, totally integrated society was then asked to segregate uh, out into their own individual spaces. Um, however, um, for a lot of people in my community, um, they were both uh, considered frontline workers. They were people who were working in warehouses and and in healthcare institutions and um, in maintenance spaces and, and and truck drivers and people who had to kind of continue moving uh, as as life you know dictated before the pandemic uh, to take the risks uh, that uh, the rest of the country was being asked to not take and actually not being um, either acknowledged for their sacrifices and their vulnerability or uh, compensated 
So in that respect, it was very much like the America that black folks know. Um, and in terms of, uh, so, so it's, it stopped in that respect. Uh, the other part about it that I think has been really important to SIP culture work is um, how the pandemic impacted the food infrastructure. So what we saw was this kind of throwback in our community, a community that historically and traditionally has provided uh, a, a huge amount of its own food, you know, from small farms um, to just being based around the entire agricultural industry. Um, you know, kind of that community reverting back to a space in which we're lining up uh, at the community center to get these USDA boxes of commodities. Uh, and that reminded me of my early uh, days, uh, my days as a youth and remembering people in my community that produced food, uh, going and standing in line to get government cheese and powdered eggs and powdered milk um, and these things. So uh, I think in many ways, we realize that the work that we're doing around food and story is, is more integral now than it was before. Uh, and I think if nothing else, people were more awakened to the work that we're doing and seeing it as relevant to where before they were like, how are you actually mixing the arts and agriculture? Now they're like, oh, we see exactly why you mix arts and agriculture. So I think those were some of the pieces that that hit us the, the hardest and, and, and the most uh, made our work uh, really more relevant and more compounded. I think the issues around police brutality, um, they've always been there. I live in Mississippi. Um, the history of Mississippi uh, is a history that integrates all of our governmental and law enforcement systems. We're all integrated uh, with with white supremacists and Ku Klux Klan members. Um, you know, they kill the three civil rights workers in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in in, in the '60s. Uh, they were responsible for uh, beating Fannie Lou Hamer uh, nearly to death. Um, you know, in in prisons in Mississippi. They were responsible for for attacking people trying to go and get the right to vote. Uh, and here we are today with kind of like the same similar moment in which uh, our right to vote is being challenged and um, and really oppressed around the state, but uh, around the country, but mostly in southern states. That's not a coincidence. Uh, and we're seeing these same issues uh, grow and develop. So um, I think for the rest of the world, it was a wake up for Black America, it seemed like, okay, finally people are seeing what, what we've been going through for a long time. I think a, a story that we often hear is of the artist growing up in a small rural community and then heading to the big city to do his or her art. What made you decide that your art was going to be inextricably tied to, to your community? What made you decide to stay and commit to making art in the community of your community and your forebears community? Maturity, <laughs> I guess, is, the, is um, maturing, um, realizing that one, um, they don't need another Carlton Turner in New York City or Chicago or Los Angeles or San Francisco. In those spaces, I'm my contributions are to New York City. They're not to the development of something that belongs to me. Um, and, and it's itinerant. Um, I can come and go and New York isn't going to change. Uh, they won't change because of my presence. They won't change because of my absence, but my home community, every time someone chooses to leave here, uh, whether it be for lack of opportunity or for, for any reasons, it impacts the community in, in profound ways. Uh, it impacts the quality of services that our community has 
whether that be doctors that are leaving or lawyers that are leaving or uh, professionals like grocers or engineers. Um, it's not that our community doesn't produce these things. It's that, that they don't, it's that they don't have connectivity to say, um, I want to stay here and I will sacrifice the interim for the long term. And um, I think that's a sacrifice that a lot of people feel uncomfortable making. I didn't feel it was a sacrifice myself because my my role and position, both as an artist, but also as a, a leader in the arts through the work with Alternate Roots, allowed me access into a lot of different communities. So I got a chance to travel and see what was happening in San Francisco and in Minneapolis and in New York City and in Atlanta and in San Antonio and in South Dakota and all of these places where I have relationships, I have people that are working on the ground there. And I was able to engage in ways that both endowed me with a sense of purpose, like what it means to do work in those communities. What does it mean for the people who live here that have never left? Uh, what does it mean for me as a person who's entering this community? How do I enter and exit in a way that is consistent with my values and principles and practices uh, as taught by um, the great Jawale Josala from the Urban Bush Women? Um, but also, how do I uh, make an investment of the resources, the networks, the information, the skills back into the community that I come from that actually made me who I am, that invested in me values and integrity and and foundational principles that show up in the way that I've shown up in every other community. So for me, it wasn't a sacrifice as much as it was wanting something different because my family is here. The, the children um, that have uh, the offspring of my cousins and my uncles and my aunts all live in this community. And if we're not making an investment here, then eventually they all leave and the place that we call home is no longer home. Since you brought up this work in your hometown, Utica, Mississippi, for our listeners that might be interested in establishing a career in their hometowns or in a place besides, you know, some of the big cities that we typically think of, you know, where major art is done. Can you talk a little bit in nuts and bolts about what did you do to help transform Utica from a, a community that consumes art to a, a community that really produces its own art? And specifically kind of what was the process you did to engage the community, the people, and then ultimately impact and change the culture? Well, I would say first and foremost that the work is ongoing and it's really at its beginning stages. So we, uh, my, my wife and I founded the Mississippi Center for Cultural Production in Utica, which is unceded Choctaw and Natchez land um, in 2017. And we began that work working with a team of architects and designers. And we started a community centered design process. Uh, so we started with just 18 months of conversation, um, asking the community to take a, a, a complete look at itself, um, to do some critical analysis around what they found. We asked the community first to, we put these big maps up on the wall of kind of like the tri-county area uh, with a lot of detail. And we asked the community to, do, to, to plot four places. We wanted to know where do you live? Where do you work? Where do you shop? And where do you worship? And what we saw is that uh, people draw, draw these lines. They drew these lines out of the community. And what we realized is that everything happens outside of Utica except sleeping. People sleep here. So, so we're now a bedroom community where um, if we go back 50 years, 
the community was actually a, a commerce, a center of commerce. It was a center of activity because it had a railroad. It had three cotton gins. It had a radio station. It had, you know, opera house, small community college, HBCU. Like it had all of these things. And, and so many of those things have, have perished and gone away. And what's left is, is, is houses that, you know, there's not a lot of new houses being built, but the community had to come to grips that it's now a bedroom community. And then we asked the question, so now that you've accepted that this is the reality, are you content with that being the identity of the community? And if not, then what is the identity that you're interested in, in, in assuming? And then we can begin to design and plot our way back from that desire to where we are today so that we can have a pathway to get there. And this has been this is foundational work. So we're, we're not even five years into the work. So we haven't transformed the community. What we've done is we've provided an outlet for the community to input their ideas and their dreams. And even that process is one that is iterative and growing and developing. So I would say that we haven't accomplished any of what we've set out to accomplish, uh, but we're on track for that work to happen and for us to see results um, over a 20 year span because this is generational work. Were you yourself particularly surprised by things you learned about your fellow community members about the way they view the community? I think, yeah, uh, not surprised. I'm a very difficult person to surprise. <laughs> I, I think in many ways it affirmed things that I thought. And, and in that affirmation, I probably suffered a little excitement and a lot of disappointment. I think what I imagined was a, a chief concern of the community from my vantage point was uh, the impact of both, I think, capitalism, um, which also Im the, the, the larger impact of capitalism, which impacts our community in so many different ways, uh, but is responsible for kind of the demise of Main Street. Um, is the emergence of Walmarts and, and the, the North Atlantic Free Trade Agreement, which took you know manufacturing to various countries, especially textiles and things that impacted our community. We used to have a shirt factory, uh, a sewing factory. Um, and those things are really huge. And, and then the impact of education and what Bob Moses, uh, who's one of my early mentors, uh, says is a sh is sharecropper education, which is enough education just to keep you owing somebody else for the rest of your life. That the impact of those things uh, has changed the quality of imagination and the ability to, to innovate into new ideas or even to, to latch on to old ideas that are still useful. One of the things that we talk about in our community is about food and, and what role food plays and how important food is. We are a community that, you know, used to have several grocery stores. We used to have a lot of people producing fresh produce and, and producing, you know, a poultry and, 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 and pork and, and beef and whatever, whatever. All of those things have gone away, including the grocery store. And now the, the place where people shop locally in, in Utica is the Dollar General store, which has a small produce section and, and mostly frozen and canned foods. That's a huge turnaround from what the community was 30 years ago. But when we pose the question to the community, what can we do about this? Almost across the board, what people say is we need another grocery store. And 
that defies the logics of economics. Because if we're only a bedroom community, it means that there's no industry here, there's no jobs here, which means that grocery stores are going to opt to go to places where there's actually jobs because that's where people are going to spend money. And people shop where they work. So there, when there were businesses in town, people shopped in town. But now people are working in Jackson or working in Crystal Springs or working in Vicksburg. They shop in Jackson. They shop in Crystal Springs. They shop in Vicksburg. So when we think about the economics of a grocery store, um, we're seeing the community sees the lack of a grocery store as a result of failed leadership. But they're looking at the local level. So they're blaming it on the mayor. They're blaming it on the count, the city councilman or the alderman. Um, they're not looking at the larger federal policies that have changed the way that factories work or the, or the places where industry is being invested in. Uh, and those are the places where I feel like as a community, we could, we could learn from some unpacking of our community's history, some unpacking of like political education uh, that helps us to understand the larger impacts of, of kind of like the global economics and how those things show up in Utica um, and not think that the mayor actually has any power to bring back a grocery store. Because he doesn't. What preconceived or preconceptions do you think people have about the role that artists can play in rural communities, particularly rural communities in the Deep South? I think that art is still such a misunderstood word and, and such a narrowly defined concept for people who don't consider themselves artists or creators. And I think that that impacts the way that people see art playing a role in community development and community transformation. Art is seen as, as either very specific to visual art, something that you paint or hang on the wall or something that you gaze at in a museum or an art exhibit, or it's looked at as performance, um, theater or, or music. Um, even the music is difficult for, I think, our rural communities to think about because music is such an ingrained part of the life. It's such a part of the culture that they don't necessarily even think of that as art. They just think of that as what it is, which is just um, this human expression that is just a part of who I am. Everybody's in the music. Um, so I think that this idea that, that art is something that is done to you hinders the ability for art to be seen as a more comprehensive tool for, for community development or even for uh, community Communication, just like, you know, we use, we utilize story as the basis for all of our gatherings. We use story and memory as a place where we start our conversations. So if we're having a community event like the one we did a couple of weeks ago in which we were talking about the development of a community cultural space um, on Main Street, uh, we started the question, which um, can you share with us, you know, a memory that you have of Main Street? What is your favorite memory of, of that space up there? And people began to just talk about, as a child, coming to the Main Street with their parents or their aunties or their grandmama or going into one of the stores on Main Street and what they would purchase there, what the atmosphere was there, what it smelled like, what it looked like, what it felt like. They would begin talking about the railroad and how you know they remember seeing the train go through town and, and all of these memories that become start to flood back. And it gets people not to just look at those as moments of nostalgia, but look at those as information technology. What we're doing is we're mining the memory to understand what has already been capable on Main Street. So you can't tell us what we can't do because we already know that this has happened before in this space. 
Uh, and I think those are the, the methodologies that have been really useful for us. I don't think anybody thought about that as an artistic exercise. They thought of it as a question, um, but that moment that you were transported through this question from your seat to Main Street in a, in a, in a time warp in which you, you moved, let's say 20, 30, 40 years into the past to, to access a memory uh, and bring that memory forward uh, as an as a opportunity to think about the future. What we're trying to do is demystify the role of the artist and the role of the arts uh, and, and to reintegrate arts back into culture and take it out of performance and into the idea of embodiment. To me, those are the things that are, are very different in the way you know, that the world treats art as a commodity, as something to be mined for the value that it possesses um, and not the intrinsic value but the profit that can be extracted from the product. Our framework is about one, that we have our own uses for, for that art and culture. And that is for us to build value that is, that is important for us locally. And realize that if we think about the production of culture as a comprehensive framework for how our community works, then we can begin to change our perception of what it means to be cultured, what it means to participate in the arts, what it means to consume culture. So those are the things that I think we're working with and trying to figure out in our local community. Why do you think artists might be best positioned to be leaders in their communities in a way that they're not doing currently? Oh yeah, I mean, this is the easiest question in the world. I think one, no matter what we've been told, all of us are creative. Everyone, every human born has the, has the ability to create. It's such a wonderful gift, right? Artists are the ones who made it to adulthood, and not all artists are adult, but I'm just using this as a, as a just hang with the picture for a second. <laughs> artists are the ones that made it to adulthood, refusing to believe everyone that told them that they were not created. And, and they continue to hold on to that, 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 that whatever that is inside of us that helps us to create, that helps us to build and imagine, and they never lost it. And they've honed the ability to tap into that source anytime they need to, to manifest something that doesn't already exist. That's why artists are essential to building a new world because everybody else are only, you know, most of the other people are, are, are fixed in doing it the way that it's been done. It's like, we only know how to do it like this because that's the only way we've ever been shown. Artists are like, well, you can do it like this, but you can also do it like this. You can do it like that too. Maybe over here and you can do it like this. And, and people are uncomfortable with change. You know, that's just first and foremost, but I think people are also uncomfortable with having a lot of options and a lot of ideas. And so we have to make idea generation uh, and the refinement of ideas through collective community critique, part of our collective critical analysis. And that's what's gonna build the cities of tomorrow and the cities that we need today that are different from the way that I think most leaders approach um, community development and, and city management, which is from um, operating those spaces as businesses or corporations. 
and artists operate them as they tend to look at these as as landscapes and built environments that are that are still in need of refinement and design and input from a collective and that's why i think artists you know creativity is essential to the development of the 21st century society and artists are most prone to do that because of the way uh, that we can access creativity i find the way he talks about the impact that the imagination and creativity a leader can have on the community that he or she grew up in. I find that so moving, you know? Mm. I mean, mm. there's nothing wrong with wanting to experience making art in like LA or Chicago or New York, of course, and being around that kind of energy and expanding mm. your horizons. But but it's interesting to think that when considering her ambition and desire to have impact, an artist could, really should, consider embedding her work in her home community and contributing like he's doing to the community's vitality. Yeah, it's it's wonderful to see. You know, we're talking to more and more artists who are starting to do this as well and and realizing that mm-hmm. the skills of an artist, the talents of an artist, the ability to brainstorm and look at multiple options and and be innovative is what's needed in small community. You know, he's creating change ultimately by trying to tap into something that's innate in all of us. He's a systems thinker, I think. He looks at larger processes, policies, norms, and then looks at how they impact at the local level. So he's really combining these two really complex ways that we function. One is individual humans with our own personal growth, and then combining it with these big cultural challenges and saying, you know, if we do this work on ourselves, it'll impact society. And if we work on the big society issues, it can impact our quality of life. And so it's kind of back and forth, you know, both sides of it. Yeah, this connecting the micro, like everyone has their own story. Everyone is right. an artist. Everyone is generative to the macro, which is these are the systems that need to be completely changed. Yeah. It's amazing how he's able to go back and forth and connect the two, just like you said. Yeah, it's a, it takes a real skill to be able to do both and and to be able to speak to both sides. You know, some people, mm-hmm. it, it appears uh, in Carlton's case, some people are good translators and it seems that that's one of his gifts because you know he's sitting on these major boards and he's he's fellows in these major organizations and yet he's still able to speak to his local community and translate it and have it make sense and hear from his community and then translate that up to these large organizations and that's really a gift i think that he's got yeah, I wish we had a Carlton in all of our small towns. And who knows, maybe in the next 20, 30 years, that's exactly what'll happen, right? Fingers crossed. So glad he found the time to speak with us. He's really inspiring. Agreed. If you'd like to read a longer version of the interview, please head to uncsa.edu slash art restart. And if you enjoyed this or any of our other episodes, please consider leaving us a rating or review so more listeners can find us. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. And I'm Rob Kramer. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>